Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is our third of BYU's winter semester 2022. I'm Doug Weatherford, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined by Professor Mark Yamada of the Department of Comparative Arts and Letters. Mark earned a PhD in Japanese literature and culture from UC Berkeley, and much of his teaching and research here at BYU focuses on Japanese cinema. A particular note is Mark's recent service as IC co-director. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Doug. Glad to be back. Oh, we're thrilled to have you back. And I might mention that Mark is here to talk to us about Hayao Miyazaki's 1986 animated classic, Castle in the Sky, and Ghibli animation films more generally. But before we get there, I did want to ask you, Mark, about what you most miss working at International Cinema since you were doing this just a couple of short months ago. Right. There's so many things. I really just miss being a part of the whole process of planning and watching films and making sure that we get the right films and then showing them and having crowds love them. It's just such a great program at BYU and it's such a great program to be a part of and really one of the best service assignments that you can ask for. So I miss the whole thing. I miss uh, you know going to film festivals and, and seeing films early on and thinking, oh, this will be a great film and then eventually being able to see it in 250 Kimball with everyone else. So I envy you, Doug, for your ability to do that on a daily basis. It is a great gig, I guess we could say. And there are a number of us now in the College of Humanities who are current or former IC co-directors. And we certainly like to bring former directors back to help us out. And we're thrilled to have you. Since we're going to be talking about an animated film that we'll be showing this week at International Cinema, I thought that maybe we could start by just talking a little bit about some of the differences that exist between animation, film, and just regular filmmaking. Yeah, no, that's a really good question because we do show quite a few animated films at BYU, like you mentioned at IC, and in some ways you can watch them, especially, and I'll I'll speak maybe about Ghibli animation because animation is such a big field, but with Ghibli animation films that we've shown, I think this year as well, I think we showed Princess Mononoke earlier on, and then this one, Castle in the Sky. But in some ways you can watch these films and in some ways they're produced a little bit like film in the sense that they're cinematic, right? That they're uh, using uh, elements of cinematography and editing and, and shot composition, or they're simulating those, those techniques in order to create a cinematic experience for viewers. And so in some ways you can watch these films as cinema, kind of like the other films that we show at International Cinema. But I think if you do that, you're also missing what animation and Ghibli animation in particular can bring to the table, which is really its composition as multi-planar images, which is a little bit of a different way of thinking about cinematic images, although you could argue that film and animation are becoming very similar because of computer processing. But with animation, originally, you have to go back to the way in which animation was produced through kind of the apparatus of of animation, which was through what's known as an animation stand. If the apparatus of film is a camera, the apparatus of animation was an animation stand. Traditionally, Disney and, and a lot of the early animators would use these stands, which in some ways compile cells together. And so you'll have, in order to kind of create a work of animation, you'll have 
animators create a background to the, sh- the shot or the scene, a middle ground and a foreground. And you'll layer those on top of each other and you'll slide them across each other to create movement. And so that was how early animation was made. And of course, it's really developed since then to the point where animation looks like cinema. But with this kind of early way of of creating a scene in animation, you would often have movement that would be lateral. So it would kind of be moving across. So movement happened as you're sliding cells across each other. And so it would appear as figures would move across the screen or the depth of a world as opposed to moving into the world. So often cinema could kind of capture somebody moving into a world, into the depth of a world, whereas animation traditionally would capture movement by capturing a figure kind of move across the world. And in some ways, if you think of a little bit about Ghibli films, this makes sense. We'll talk about that in a second. But what happens in this process of sliding cells across each other is you get a sense of weightlessness. It almost seems like the the characters appear to be floating, not really kind of tethered to the ground. And so what's interesting about Miyazaki and Ghibli is that Ghibli animation in some ways captures the effects of that early animation process. Now, of course, if Ghibli wanted to, they could create computer animated works that would really simulate cinematic worldviews. But what they do is in some ways create animation the old-fashioned way, which is allowing some of the effects of that early animation process of lateral movement to be the the standard form of movement in their animated work. Sorry, I'm kind of going on here a little bit. Oh, that's uh, great information. And just to interject real quickly, I think that uh, for our listeners who get to watch Castle in the Sky, that looking at the use of motion yeah. and movement throughout the film is one of the great pleasures of the film. So keep going. This is a great explanation. Yeah, and, and I think that's like you, you, you mentioned that, and you'll see this as kind of a pattern in a lot of his films, that really flying and floating is a common theme or form of movement. And I think in some ways that's kind of the apparatus reflection of that early process of creating animation. And so you'll have witches and you'll have planes and some of the other films he, that he has directed, like Nashka. You'll have gliders that fly across the sky. You'll have in The Wind Rises about a an engineer who creates a war plane about planes flying across the sky. And so flight and movement is, is really key. And I think in some ways that Miyazaki and Ghibli really accentuates this lateral movement across the world. Another thing that, as I mentioned, the sense of weightless, weightlessness that comes from that original animation process is captured possibly in the, in the sense of floatingness that you have in a Miyazaki kind of world. So this idea of flying, of floating, of things not really being tethered to the ground, I think is really a kind of a common trademark of, of a Miyazaki film. And you'll see this throughout, as you mentioned, Castle in the Sky and this idea of floating and flying that really a lot of the action takes place not on the ground, but up in the sky. And so that's something to look for and to think about how that relates to maybe the original process of making animation versus film in that way. Great. And if maybe uh, for those who know a little bit less about this topic, perhaps you could just quickly introduce Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli that have become so iconic in animated circles. Yeah, as you mentioned, he's an iconic figure in animation, Japanese animator 
who uh, began doing comic books and, and drawing that way. So a great illustrator, but started making films. I think one of his first films, this is one of the first films that was produced by Ghibli, but he's made films like Princess Mononoke, as I mentioned, Spirited Away. Uh, Totoro is a film that I think is a, is a great favorite of a lot of people. And so it's kind of an interesting alternative or contrast to Disney animation, which you'll often see is a little bit more anthropocentric in the sense that it's really about characters and, and their presence in the world. And you'll often notice in Miyazaki's worlds that nature takes on a little bit more of a focus. And so very much interested in nature and the natural worlds. As you mentioned, he works for a studio named Ghibli, which is located in Tokyo and is really kind of the center of animation. I believe that Miyazaki retired a few years ago, but I think he's coming out of retirement and actually working on a film right now. But really one of the great centers of animation in the world is the Ghibli studio and Miyazaki is one of the great auteurs of animation. Great. You know, one of the questions that I had that you began talking about is some of the difference between U.S. animation studios and Ghibli Studios and other uh, animators in Japan. And you mentioned the importance of the environment. I want to come back to that theme in a bit. But first, one of the things that really strikes me when you watch this film is how long it is. Right. It's fairly long. And the pacing, I think, is very different from a typical animated film in the United States. And so one of the questions I might ask is, are these animated films by Miyazaki coming out of Ghibli Studio, are they intended for kids? Are they for adults? Or who is the audience for these films? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in some ways, animation, there's a little bit of a a stigma with animation in America in the sense that it's usually considered for kids, right? And adolescent audiences. And Japan is probably a little bit more flexible in the way that they view animation. And this goes back with comic books and and, in animated works, that you see animation that has a little bit more appeal to a broad range of audiences. And so you'll have animation for adults. A film like Princess Mononoke, I think it shocks people a little bit because they they think that they're watching, you know, a kind of a Disney film, but it has some more serious tone to it, serious themes about environmentalism and apocalypse and, and things. And so this film, I think, in some ways is really on the, the border between adolescence, but also dealing with some more interesting ideas, right, about environmentalism and, and human and the human place within the environment. And so There's a little bit of a flexibility there, I think, in terms of how Japanese view animation that can kind of bridge the divide between adolescent and more mature forms of media, popular and and more serious forms as well. And I think this film is is a really good example of that, of kind of bridging those two. Okay. Well, let's keep going with this, uh, the question of uh, the environment. Uh, You know, my my experience with the Asian film market is is a nascent, I guess you could say. I'm, I'm, I'm more of a specialist in Latin American filmmaking. Right. Uh, it does seem that frequently uh, many of the films that I watch from Japan, Korea, and China are really interested in place, whether yeah. that be an urban setting or a, an outdoor one. But especially in Japanese film, it seems like the environment and issues of the environment come up and up and up again. Is that your sense as well? Yeah, and I think so. And I think, you know, I mean, at risk of kind of orientalizing or or using cliches, I think in some ways, 
Japanese consider themselves to be not so much individuals, but part of a larger order, right? Part of, of a group order, of an environmental order, of an ecosystem. And I think you'll see this in the cinematography of a lot of films of some of the great directors like Kurosawa and Ozu, that they use a lot of long shots, right? And wide shots and and still camera to really capture not so much people per se, but but place through which people move, right? So it's really about capturing place. And so perhaps, and maybe this is, again, kind of a little bit of a generalization, in American cinema and animation, we, we tend to focus on the subject and, and the background becomes a stage on which they, they perform and they act. There's a little bit of a reverse there in, in Japanese perspective. And again, I'm generalizing a little bit, but there tends to be this idea of, of humans and subjects as part of a larger ecosystem. And I think you'll see that in Ghibli animation that it uses, I think there are close-ups of characters, but it does use quite a few long shots. Like you said, the pacing is slower. The camera is not as frenetic as you'll often see it. Except at the same time, there are some, you know, some, some moments of, of great action and energy, but it does in some ways position humans as part of something larger. And I think in some ways this carries over possibly to its view on on technology and maybe something maybe that you can look for in this film and when you watch Ghibli films in general is the relationship between humans and the environment and technology. It seems like Miyazaki is always kind of playing with these three different things. And oftentimes I think, you know, in certain worldviews, we, we have this idea of humans maybe kind of mediating this relationship between technology and nature, that humans are kind of the central point to this, right? That, that technology is often evaluated according to human experience. Is it good? Is it bad according to you know, human progress? What do humans gain from it? What do they lose? I think in some ways what's interesting about Miyazaki's films is he tries to remove humans from that mediating role and maybe allow technology and even nature to kind of develop a relationship. And you'll see that in this film, at the end of the film, they go to this flying island and it's an island that's deserted. There's no human life there, but there are robots and there's nature. And they've formed this interesting relationship that doesn't even include humans anymore. And so I think that's something that's maybe a way of looking at Ghibli animation a little bit is to think about how, and it's not so much removing humans, but maybe repositioning them or allowing nature and technology to kind of be judged on their own merits or to kind of develop in their own ways without being tied so much to kind of the human experience. So there's a little bit of a non-anthropocentric focus in the animation here. And you'll see that for sure in this film. That's a fascinating. I think back to one of my favorite visual elements of the film are the representations of the mining village. Yeah. And uh, you get these long, tall cliff walls that frequently have outcroppings of buildings, mine entrances. It almost seems like homes in them. And it, it's such a beautiful representation. And it almost made me think of perhaps a, a metonymic representation of the presence and absence of the human, mm. because you see these outcroppings, but they're not people in them, right? So right. it's a representation of the presence of human existence at the same time that often you don't see humans yeah. present. But it's a real fascinating way of perhaps combining the natural 
and the man-made world that uh, that I found to be quite fascinating in the film. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Early on, that the mining, like you mentioned, that the mines, that you have these layers of civilization that have come before. And I think this is a way of looking at Miyazaki's films. I, I read somewhere that someone talked about his films as really being somewhere on this kind of cyclical pattern between civilization and then destruction and apocalypse and then the recreation of civilization that that I think in this film you see these layers of, of civilizations that have come before these like you said the traces of, of the human that are there right but um, have in some ways been kind of naturalized and and the the island that I mentioned earlier on is really a, a fascinating place because it is a kind of this weird ecosystem that's developed. And maybe as you're watching this film, watch to see how the shots of when the, you know, the two characters land on the island and the way in which in some ways they're viewing the island, but the island is almost viewing them as well, that they're being watched, that the island is looking back. And so it doesn't, it's not just this place that to be conquered by these people, this kind of pristine nature, but almost this, this world that's developed on its own without their intervention. Although we shouldn't leave out the importance of humans and human relations uh, in this film as well. Of course, uh, the protagonists are called Shida and uh, Pazu, I think uh, are their names, right? These two yeah. orphan kids who become friends. And, and I'm, I was wondering if you might just quickly talk about two ideas that I think are really fun to follow throughout the film. And that is first, friendship and yeah. cooperation perhaps, but also the real presence of, of uh, perhaps a strong female protagonist within the film. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Maybe the second part I'll talk about first, because I think in Ghibli animation, you'll often have female protagonists, and they're often a little bit more intuitive in the sense that they're able to connect with nature, that they they tend to fly in flying machines that are not so intrusive. I think the, the male characters in Ghibli films are kind of engineers and they tinker with machinery and they, they create these kind of monstrosities that fly through the air. But, but it's really the female characters that are a little bit more intuitive. They're, they're strong characters. They're often described as a beautiful fighting girl. That's kind of a, maybe a character trope in, in Ghibli animation that they're these kind of younger, beautiful women, but they're also these fighters and they're strong, right? And so there is that kind of aspect being depicted here. But I think you mentioned also this idea of friendship and how they, the two characters kind of strike up a friendship and, and work together to resist the evil forces, right, that are, that are working in their, in their world. But I, I also enjoy the relationship between the, the pirates, right, who we initially think are kind of the bad guys, but kind of become these neutral helpers, right, in the sense of, of helping the two characters meet their destiny. So it's definitely a fun film. And I think, you know, it's, it's a favorite among younger audiences. But I do think that there's more there than maybe just kind of an adolescent worldview, that there's an interesting kind of look at, at humans' relationship to nature and the development of technology. So I think there's a lot there for even more mature audiences to enjoy. So a family film, a true family film that you can, uh, that you can go to and enjoy. Thank you. That's a, that's a great, perhaps, summary of this film and why people might want to see it, especially at international cinema. And before we conclude this podcast episode, I'm wondering, Mark, if we might just talk about uh, the place of animated movies at International Cinema. You and I both have taught an amazing class that is offered at BYU. It's ICS, International Cinema Studies 290R. Yeah. And it's a fairly large class. It's a credit and a half. 
that uh, has students from all over the campus, all kinds of majors who come who are interested in watching movies and talking about them. And this is perhaps a plug for the class. But I bring the class up because it really gives the IC co-directors an opportunity to have direct contact with people who are watching movies at IC, who love movies and have great uh, suggestions about movies that we might show in future semesters. And one of the things that I've noticed that comes up constantly is international cinema needs to show more animated movies. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it seems like uh, last semester we had three films that were animated. This semester, I think we have three. uh, So we we don't uh, not include animated films. But I'm just uh, wondering if you have any thoughts on on the place of animation at international cinema and maybe a recommendation of a recent animated film at IC that you've seen that people might look for again? Well, that's a really good question. I think I mentioned earlier on that, um, you know, you can definitely view animation just like cinema, especially the ones that we show at international cinema, they tend to be more cinematic. I think animation is great for many reasons. One is that it you can do things in, in animation that you can't often do in film. You can deal with, you know, their animation about war and the atomic bomb dropping in Japan, you know, these really heavy issues that in some ways animation can depict them, but also give you a little bit of a buffer zone between, you know, if, if you imagine doing a, a live action version of a film uh, in which you have this apocalyptic event, how hard that would be and how maybe too close to life that would be animation gives you a little bit of a buffer zone. So I think in, in some ways, animation does have a good place there because we, we can deal with issues. And, you know, Flea, is, I know, is a film that you'll be showing this semester, which is a really great film about the experience of fleeing from a violent situation and, and finding oneself dealing with these issues in a way that softens material a little bit, allows audiences to sit in there and, and, and hear about these great stories and these sometimes these very difficult situations without being overwhelmed maybe by the material. And so there's something about BYU audiences and animation. I think many people are, are grown up on Disney and I think Ghibli as well. And so they, they take to animation. But I think in some ways that may be the power of animation to help us especially some of these films that, that delve into more difficult issues of being able to show these films to people and not have to worry so much about some of the triggers that uh, can be hard in, in more violent, more explicit kind of things. So I think it definitely has a place. You know, anything by Ghibli, I think, is, is always a crowd pleaser at IC. There's a film that's coming up. I think it's being released in the United States this month. It's called Bell. And it's gotten a lot of good reviews. It's by the director Mamoru Hosoda, whose film Mirai we showed a few years ago. And so it's and it's supposed to be one of his best. So I think that's one to definitely think about for fall semester. Great. And I'm thrilled that uh, you talked about Flea because that will be coming up. And I think that it's an important, largely animated documentary about escape from Afghanistan like you say, in the refugee issue. And I I think that it's important that you mentioned, you know, the use of animation uh, to try and tell uh, some more difficult stories, especially perhaps when animation can give a director an opportunity to show and to say things that might not be able to be said or or shown in other ways. I think of uh, Persepolis that we showed uh, last semester that was set in Iran, right? And it would have been very difficult to film Right. Uh, not a movie without doing it uh, in animated form. This semester, I might also point to Joseph, uh, which is a mm-hmm. French-Spanish uh, co-production 
about uh, an individual fleeing Spain after the defeat of the Republican army uh, during the rise of uh, fascist uh, Franco and ends up in France, essentially in a concentration camp. And the animation is, is stunning, but uh, deals with a fairly serious topic. And uh, I might also point out to last semester, in addition to Weathering with You, which I think was one of the mo- one of the favorite films of last semester, it was yeah. part of our encore week, so it had shown previously. Uh, but it was a film called Buñuel and the Labyrinth of Turtles. That right. if you're a fan of animation, you're a fan of Louis Buñuel. We've talked about this film on our podcast uh, previously, but also deals with some difficult topics. And including filmmaking, and I, I think in very interesting ways that animation adds to the process of filmmaking. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, is there any uh, last comment that you'd like to make before we uh, conclude? No, looking forward to this great semester, though. A lot of great films. Well, thank you for your service to international cinema and for being willing to come back. I'm sure that uh, our viewers will listen to comments from you in uh, future uh, semesters as well. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on From the Booth. This podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and is supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our producer, Devin Glenn, our sound engineer, Marina Hegstrom-Pratt, and Johnny Stallings, who composed our podcast soundtrack. Visit ic.byu.edu for upcoming films and showtimes. And until next week, keep seeing great international movies.